welcome to another episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. And it's a triple guest of fiesta, except instead of guests, we have judgments from the Supreme Court. We will whip through the final three cases of 2023, so without any further ado, let's get started. The first case is Zubeda and Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the citation is 2023 UKSC 50. Right from the get-go, it is important to say that these proceedings are about the correct jurisdiction rather than particular facts, and hopefully you'll see why that's an important distinction at this stage. Zubeda is a Palestinian national who has been detained by the United States since 2002. He is currently being held in Guantanamo Bay. As far as the facts go, it is alleged that between 2002 and 2006, Zubeda was detained and tortured in a number of US black sites. The UK is said to be complicit in this because our secret services sent questions to the CIA for Zubeda to answer. He is now seeking compensation from the UK Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office for injuries that he says were sustained in the pursuit of answers to those questions while he was held in black sites across six countries. Thailand, Poland, Morocco, Lithuania, Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay. The question for now is purely about jurisdiction. Should the law of England and Wales apply, or should it be the law of the six countries I just mentioned? The High Court agreed with the UK government, but the Court of Appeal agreed with Zubeda that the correct jurisdiction was indeed England and Wales. The Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office appealed to the Supreme Court and that is where we pick things up. The relevant legislation is sections 11 and 12 of the Private International Law Miscellaneous Provisions Act 1995. Section 11 sets out a general rule that the applicable law is the country in which the tort occurred. In this case, that would be the six countries. However, section 12 provides an exception to this general rule if the factors connecting the tort to a different country outweigh the factors connecting the tort to the country where the tort occurred. This requires the courts to undertake a comparative exercise, and while the higher courts should be loath to interfere in assessments made by lower courts, the Court of Appeal was right here to identify problems with the high court's approach and allow Zubeda's appeal. However, it gets more interesting because the Supreme Court actually disagreed with the narrow approach of the Court of Appeal, and undertook their own evaluation. For the justices, while the general rule is that the correct applicable law is the six countries, there are a number of factors which reduce their significance. For a start, Zubeda was in those countries involuntarily. The rendition took place without reference to the laws of those countries. The sheer variety of countries undermines the importance of any one particular country out of the six. And finally, the people interrogating Zubeda were not from those countries, but were instead US secret agents. Meanwhile, on the other side of the assessment, there are also a number of things that connect the alleged torts to the UK. The torts are supposed to have been committed by the UK secret services, part of the alleged torts took place in England, and the UK agents were acting in their official capacity under powers granted to them under the law of England and Wales. Now, before we finish, it is worth mentioning that this was a majority decision with Lord Sales dissenting, 
he emphasised the fact that the injuries were sustained in the six countries. The CIA agents, as the main alleged perpetrators, were also present in those countries. Furthermore, the fact that the UK secret services were not the ones primarily involved in the torture diminishes the idea that England and Wales is the applicable jurisdiction. Lord Sales makes some relevant points here, but ultimately I think that he is wrong. There is certainly not enough to connect the alleged torts to the six countries, and that displaces the presumption in section 11. After that point, the key thing is that the alleged torts were supposedly committed by the UK secret services in their official capacity, and that is surely enough to create a sufficient link under section 12. Any other outcome would undermine the purpose of the legislation, which is designed to establish an appropriate jurisdiction. The UK and other countries should not be allowed to avoid accountability by permitting torture across multiple black sites around the world. Okay, the next case that we are looking at this week is Byers and Saudi National Bank, which has the citation 2023 UKSC 51. And this takes us into the area of equity and trusts, where a Mr. Al Sanea held shares on trust for Saad Investment Company Limited. A few years later, he transferred those shares to the Samba Financial Group. Now, in English law, there is a distinction made between the legal title to property, i.e. who owns it on paper, and the equitable interest in the property, i.e. who gets the benefit. The problem in these proceedings is that there is no such distinction in Saudi law, and so the transfer extinguished Saad's equitable interest in the shares. Saad then went into liquidation, and the joint liquidators of the company made a claim against Samba for knowing receipt, arguing that they knowingly received property that had been transferred in breach of trust. Samba's assets were then transferred to the Saudi National Bank. Saad's claim failed in the lower courts, and so the case made its way to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. The justices decided the case based on some applicable, equitable principles. The first is that the transfer of property by a trustee in breach of trust to a purchaser acting in good faith, and without notice of the breach of trust, also commonly known as a bona fide purchaser for value without notice, extinguishes or overrides the equitable interest held in that property by the beneficiary of the trust. Secondly, even if that bona fide purchaser later comes to know that the property was transferred in breach of trust, that does not revive the equitable interest even if they later transfer the property again themselves. Third, there is no claim for knowing receipt because their equitable interest in the property has been extinguished. Fourth, a claim for dishonest assistance is not comparable with a claim for knowing receipt. And finally, the earlier extinction of an equitable interest precludes a proprietary claim against the recipient. Putting this all together, the Supreme Court concluded that because Saudi law extinguished Saad's equitable interest, they cannot now make a claim in respect of the shares. This case has attracted some academic interest. Following the decision in the High Court, a piece was written in the Law Quarterly Review by Professor Ben McFarlane and Sinead Agnew that focused on the distinction between knowing receipt and dishonest assistance. This is a view that appears to have been confirmed by the Supreme Court. Finally, we come to the case of HXA and Surrey County Council, which was heard alongside YXA and Wolverhampton City Council. 
The citation for these cases is 2023 UKSC 52, and they relate to claims of negligence brought against local authorities. It is alleged that the two claimants suffered sexual or physical abuse by parents or the partners of parents, and that the local authorities owed a duty of care because they had, through their conduct, assumed responsibility to protect them from harm caused by third parties. The local authorities deny that they have this responsibility. It is agreed that there is no statutory duty here, so the question is whether one exists at common law. The justices began by noting the leading case in this area, which was the 2019 decision in N and Poolborough Council. In that judgment, it was held that in order to discover if there is indeed a duty of care, it is necessary to establish that the local authority has assumed responsibility to protect the claimant from harm. To make this assessment, the same principles are applied to a local authority as are applied to a private individual. In other words, it is unaffected by any separate statutory duties. In respect of HXA, while the local authority did look to investigate, seek legal advice and undertake keeping safe work, These were merely preparatory steps ahead of applying for a care order, and did not in themselves create an assumption of responsibility. For YXA, the fact that the local authority provided respite care to the child did not mean that they assumed responsibility to use reasonable care to protect YXA from abuse within their home. It is true that this did represent a delegation of parental responsibility, but this was only temporary, and ultimately the parents retained responsibility throughout. As such, the appeals were allowed. What the children went through in these cases was awful, and I tried to skirt around some of the details in this episode. It is impossible not to be sympathetic, but that does not equate to a responsibility of the relevant local authority. The problem with the Court of Appeal judgment is that it's quite open-ended, and does not delineate the circumstances where a local authority will have a duty of care. On the other hand, the High Court judgment seemed to infer that a local authority will almost never owe a duty of care. I'm not sure that the Supreme Court exactly struck a perfect balance in this case between those decisions, and this is still an evolving area of the law, but the judgment does seem to offer some useful guidance to claimants and councils alike. While HXA and YXA were not successful in this case, the justices did make it clear that a responsibility can arise where there is more of a connection between the role undertaken by the authority and the harm caused. For example, a duty could arise where there is a care order in place, or even just in relation to social work undertaken by a council. This obiter could certainly spark more claims in the future, but it should prevent the dreaded floodgates from being opened up completely. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Before I go, I just wanted to say um, slight apologies for my voice. I've had a little bit of a tickling cold this week, so hopefully that doesn't come through too much in the episode, but apologies if it does. And of course, because we covered three cases this week, I've probably not gone through them in enough detail, but um, hopefully it's enough to give you sort of like the um, facts of the case and the important aspects of the decision. And if you'd like to find out more, then hopefully I've given you um, some ideas about where you could start to look for those. 
Um, also, I'd like to say a quick thank you to all of the people who have signed up for the newsletter in recent weeks. A number of people have upgraded from a free subscription to a paid subscription, and that has really made a big difference in terms of helping me to be able to take the time to produce more content and to help to keep this podcast ad-free. If you are interested in either a free subscription or a paid subscription to my newsletter, then do check out the link in the description to this podcast episode. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye! Thank you.